I'm reading today from Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 8. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Thanks, Simone. Uh, well, it is a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure to be here with you uh, this morning. Uh, I have to say, between the initial plan to come or the initial plan to speak here and today, I think we're up to plan E or F or something like that. You know what it's like at the moment, don't you? Originally, I was planning actually to be in Mackay this weekend doing a missions conference. Uh, but Peter said, oh, that's okay, we're not going to be able to meet at Fig Tree anyway, so you can record it. So I was going to record and be played here and be in Mackay, but now I'm being played in Mackay and physically here, but next week I can't even be physically here. So um, God is in charge. Our plans are so fragile, aren't they? Our plans are so fragile, and this year, uh, perhaps more than any other I've lived through, I've been reminded just how fragile our plans are, which makes it wonderful to reflect on how indestructible God's plans are. Isn't it great that God's plans are indestructible? And here over the next week, we're going to be thinking about God's plan, and at the heart of God's plan is mission. Mission is the biggest, most significant thing going on in the history of the world, and it's the biggest, most significant thing going on in our world right now, no matter what your news feed tells you. The biggest thing going on right now is people coming to hear and follow the Lord Jesus, to repent and believe. But has it always been God's plan? I mean, is that God's plan now that things have kind of worked out this way, or was it God's plan from the beginning? I mean, if you think right back to the beginning, was it always God's plan? Or was mission, this thing that we know of as mission, something invented in the 18th century when 
tall ships and pith helmets and, uh, and people f- sailing the seas. Is that when mission kind of came about? Or, or maybe we know it's a Christian thing, but is it just a post-Jesus thing? Was mission something that God just invented after Jesus came? Is that when mission started? Just in the New Testament, maybe? Well, over the next two weeks, I actually want to paint a picture for you about how God thinks about the nations of the world. And I want to convince you that right from the day of creation, it has always been God's plan to bring all things under the feet of the Lord Jesus. This week, we're going to look mostly at the Old Testament. And next week, we're going to look mostly at the New Testament. And you'll know that the Old Testament is overwhelmingly focused just on one nation. One nation that if you, if you put Israel here in Australia, it would only go from Wollongong to Newcastle and out to Katoomba. Okay? That's the whole of, of Israel and most of the Old Testament happens just there. But it was always God's plan for that nation that occupied that piece of land to reach out to all the nations. Uh, We're going to spend a great deal of our time this morning, I hope, focused on the passage that Simone just read for us from Exodus 19. Uh, That comes just before the Ten Commandments were given. Okay, So if you kind of picture the scene uh, in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai, And God is speaking to the nation of Israel. They've just come out of Egypt. They're rescued from slavery. And God is speaking to the nation through Moses. And this is a formative um, moment in the nation's history. This is when they actually become formed and get an identity as a nation. And and at this moment, what is God going to say to them? Well, Well, just before we get there, though, Um, We need to recognise, of course, that this Wollongong to Newcastle, out to Katoomba, this patch of land, this one nation, well, God created the whole world, of course. And he had a plan for all of the nations. But how did they come about? How did Israel fit in? Well, all all of the nations, we hear about them in the Bible for the first time, uh, really in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel incident, where the languages are confused and the different nations separate out from from one another at that point the people of the world were trying to make a great name for themselves were trying to be great themselves and ignore God and in response God scattered them and confused their languages in the very next chapter we hear how God plans to turn that around we hear how God plans to bring all things not only together but under the Lord Jesus and to himself. And so in Genesis 12, 12, and we'll see this come up on the screen, Genesis 12, the very next chapter, um, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. 
You see, why at Babel, the people were trying to make a great name for themselves, trying to be great themselves, ignoring God. Here, God's promise is that he will give Abraham, or Abram, a great name. He will look after, their, uh, after Abram's greatness and make him into a great nation. His name will be great, he'll be blessed, and he'll be a blessing somehow in him or through him to all the peoples of the earth or all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abram's descendants. Aren't you embarrassed when people try to make themselves seem great? <laughs> I mean, isn't that embarrassing when you, when you hear somebody else trying to talk up their own greatness? That's embarrassing, isn't it? Um, when people go on and on about their achievements or their victories, it's part of the reason I can't watch a Donald Trump um, interview at the moment. It's just, it, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. It's, I don't, please stop telling me how great you are. It's just embarrassing. Because when you trumpet your own greatness, it just makes you seem puny and weak. And it's embarrassing, especially when we could be talking about the greatness of God. So instead of talking up our own greatness, imagine God, the Great One, saying that we are great, giving us a greatness. That's what happened to Abraham. At Babel, people wanted to make themselves great. With Abraham, the great God, proclaimed that he would make this one great and his nation but to be a blessing for others right from the start. When we try and make ourselves great, it's self-indulgent. God makes Abram a great nation to bless others. By the time we get to our passage for today, Abraham's uh, family has actually grown into a nation, as promised. They're freed from slavery, they're on the way to the promised land, and at this defining moment, just before they're given the law... Gathered at the foot of, the, of, of Sinai, God speaks through Moses and he's about to tell them who this nation is, who they are, how they're going to relate to him and how they're going to relate to the rest of the world. And so again from the passage, let me remind you, it'll come up on the screen. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you to speak to the Israelites. Did you hear the extraordinary privilege that God offers the nation at this point? If, verse 5... If they obey him fully and keep his covenant, they keep his law. And God's law is no simple set of do's and don'ts. It's a code for the whole of life, for every part of life. And it's spelled out not just what was right and wrong, but how Israel was to be as a nation and especially how they were to be different to every other nation round about them. If they obeyed this law, if they kept this covenant, although the whole earth is God's and every nation belongs to him, 
Israel will be described in three unique ways. You pick them up from the passage. One, they would be God's treasured possession. Two, a kingdom of priests. And three, a holy nation. And I just want to unpack those three things because this tells us how God plans to reach the nations. Firstly, Israel would be God's treasured possession. It's as if all the nations of the world are like gemstones, but Israel are the crown jewels. That's what it means to be God's treasured possession. Uh, The whole nation, secondly, would be a kingdom of priests. Now, in the Jewish law, there's a special role for the Levitical priests, the priests from the tribes of Levi. You've got God, you've got the nation of Israel, and in between God and the nation of Israel are the priests. And the priests bring the prayers of the people and the sacrifice of the people to God. And they bring the word of God to the people. They are to teach, to read the word of God. So the the priests are in the middle. So what does it mean then if the whole nation is a kingdom of priests? So you've got God, you've got the whole nation of Israel. Who's down here? It's all the nations of the world. The idea of a kingdom of priests makes no sense except that they are to bring the word of God to the world and bring the concerns of the world, the prayers of the world to God. That's the role that the nation of Israel was to have as mediators, go-betweens between God and the rest of the world. This is the heart of their identity. That's the second thing. They are to be a kingdom of priests. And the third thing they are to be is a holy nation. Now, holiness has two aspects to us. Uh, Holy things are different and holy things stand out. They're set apart. Okay? Sorry, that's one. They're different, they're set apart. The second thing is they are pure. Okay? So they stand out and they are pure. And the whole law goes on to describe just how different Israel was to be from all the nations round about them and what purity would look like, what it would look like for them to be devoted only to Yahweh. The food they would eat would be different. They would farm differently. They would dress differently. They would behave differently. They knew what was right and wrong differently from the nations round about them because They were holy. And time and again, throughout the law, the people are told to do something so that they, the nations of the world, would know that I am Yahweh. You see, holiness is not a kind of goal in itself, like you just got to try and achieve holiness and that's it. Holiness has a point. And the point of holiness is it's meant to be a witness to the nations. It's meant to cause the nations to be jealous. What have they got that we haven't got? Who is this God they follow? Holiness was meant to provoke people like that. But do you see the irony with holiness then? See, Israel's supposed to be different from the nations and the the difference was going to be something that attracted the nations to God. 
But Israel didn't want to be different from the nations around about them. And if ever you've had a conversation with a teenager, uh, you know what it's like when you want to encourage it. It's good to be different. It's good to stand out and say, oh, I don't want to be different. And it's not at all just teenagers, is it? <laughs> so we love to fit in and holiness means you don't fit in. But the thing is, as Christians now, <laughs> the more we work hard to fit in and be just like the people round about us to prove that we're really, no, we're just like you, we're really just... The more successful we are at that, the less likely it is that anybody will want to join us or follow the Lord Jesus. Because if you're really just like us, why would I bother? See the irony with holiness? It's difficult to be holy. But holiness is attractive. Holiness is attractive. You have a different hope. You have a different reason for living. You have a different joy. Difference. Holiness. is We've just got to tease out which bits of difference are the kind of you know, socks and sandals wearing difference and which bit of difference are actually genuinely attractive holiness. Uh, and we, you go for this one, um, wear socks and sandals if you want, but that's, that's not what holiness is actually about. Israel are to be holy. Three things, notice in each of the three things, the identity of Israel is tied up with their relationship to the other nations. A treasured possession compared to the other nations. A kingdom of priests drawing the other nations to God. Holy in comparison to and as a witness to the other nations. You can't talk about God's plan for Israel and understand it at all without recognising that they were always meant to be the mediators to the nations, the witness to the rest of the world. And it's tragic then, isn't it, that as the sad history of Israel rolls on, they never lived up to their part of the deal. They didn't obey God fully, they didn't keep his covenant and they showed very little interest in bringing the nations to God. On the brightest of days there was this hope that they might live up to their potential. Like the day when the temple was dedicated and Solomon prayed, and I think we'll, we'll have this up on the screen as well, 1 Kings 8, Solomon prayed, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand, your outstretched hand. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel." And may know that this house that I have built bears your name. I mean, it's a wonderful hope. But in the whole history of Israel, it scarcely ever happened. And so the nation was left to hope for a future. For a day when the prophets promised that the nations would actually stream into Jerusalem to come to the temple to hear the word of God. 
And the prophets promised this idea that it would happen. It's kind of a magnetic idea that people would be drawn to Jerusalem, that the nations would come in. That's the hope. But as time went on and the prophets painted their picture of a hope beyond the disaster that was the history of Israel, beyond the awful reality of the exile, the hope that the nations would come to God was revived in prophecy. It was still part of God's plan that Israel would somehow serve all the nations. Listen to this description from Isaiah chapter 41. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you, I said, you are my servant, I've chosen you, I've not rejected you. Do you see that Israel is the Lord's servant, plan A is still on track, I've called you, I... and God then goes on to say what it is that this servant, this Israel, this nation would do. Isaiah 42 verse 6, I the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles or a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. That's the first great servant song. And in the next servant song in Isaiah 49, uh, we see a lot of this language comes up again and again. But in Isaiah 49, something strange happens. Because here in Isaiah 42, it's the nation of Israel that's going to be the servant. The nation is the servant of God. But by the time you get to chapter 49, it's not a nation but an individual. There's one. There's one servant of the Lord. The job that was to be for the whole nation is being born by a single person. And that's a massive shift. And so we get this new representative figure, this servant of the Lord. And the nation will be, who is it? Now, of course, I don't expect it will come as any great surprise to you to hear that it's Jesus. Jesus is the servant of the Lord, the true Israelite who is going to be the light to the Gentiles, the light to the nations, who's going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But remember, all of this ministry, all of this servant role was initially given to the whole nation. So as we meet Jesus, we meet not just an Israelite, but the new Israel. Not just a treasured possession, but God's precious one and only Son. Not so much a kingdom of priests, but the one and only Messiah, King of the universe, who is also a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Holy? Yes. Lived the perfect sinless life in contrast to 
and in the place of a sinful humanity in order to bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now, next week, we're going to think uh, more clearly and more carefully about what that means for my place and your place in God's plans for the nations. But for today, I just want us to slow down and pause for a moment to recognise what this tells us about Jesus. So unlike you and I, my plans for this weekend have gone through several different versions and our plans are all over the place, but God's plan, plan A, is still in operation. God's plan for the world is being brought about through Jesus and that plan was never derailed. To use one of the descendants of Abram, the nation of Israel, and when the whole nation falls, still the plan When the whole nation fails, still the plan doesn't fail. Because just as he always intended, God sent Jesus into the world. The light of the world to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And as we move next week into thinking about the part that we might play in this great plan, in plan A... We need to realise, don't we, that if God didn't need the nation of Israel, he doesn't actually need me or you either. Do you get that? The failure of the nation of Israel could not derail God's plans and they could not be credited with bringing God's plans about. And my failure or my success and your failure and your success will neither derail God's plans nor bring about its success. Anybody who wants to engage with God's mission in the world needs to get this. God's mission does not depend on you. Not on your activity, not on your passion, not on your faithfulness, not on your money. God's mission to the nations depends on Jesus. Now, once you get that, and you get that you can be confident that this plan is actually what's going to happen in the world, you will engage in it in a completely different way. Not bringing your riches so that it will succeed, but knowing that it is going to succeed, being invited to join being invited to join. We will see mission not as a, a, a box I have to tick, not as a chore I have to do, not as an obligation I have to com- complete, but as an invitation to accept. An invitation to get on the Jesus Express and just clap and cheer as it goes to victory. That's the invitation. This is what's going to happen. The invitation is get on board. Right now around the world, the gospel is growing and growing and the numbers of Christians are growing. Uh, The number of atheists in the world has been shrinking dramatically and consistently since the 1990s. Did you know that? 
Since the fall of communism, the number of atheists in the world has shrunk dramatically. Now, that's not what's going on in our media, and it's not what's going on in Australia necessarily, but in world terms, that's definitely what's going on. The gospel is growing and mission is strong. Communist China now has more Christians in it than any other single nation in the world. It's predicted, though, that India is going to, the most Hindu nation in the world, will have more Christians than China by 2060. The continent of Africa has sustained church growth of 9,000 people per week. Do you get that? Well, it's not true, actually. 9,000 people per day for the last 120 years. Consistently. Even in places like Iran, where for 1,200 years there was almost no discernible growth in the church there at all, or even presence in the church for much of that time. Over the last 15 years, there have been very, very exciting signs of growth uh, in Iran and amongst Persian exiles around the world. Even in, in the Diocese of Sydney, there are a couple of congregations, congregations full of Iranians. Plan A is on track. Now, it's bizarre, isn't it, as those who are in the room look around and uh, see the masks and think, well, we can't even gather here next week. All of the things that we know of as church are up in... We can have no confidence in our plans at all, can we? But that's okay. Because God's plan A has survived pandemics and plagues in the past and has thrived in such circumstances and will again, even though I can't tell you what that's going to look like. God's plan will not be derailed. This is what the history of the world is all about, bringing all things under the feet of the Lord Jesus, and it will happen. Israel's disobedience couldn't stop it, and nothing that the world can throw up, at now, uh, throw up now at it will stop it either. Be confident, be glad. Our place in all of this is not to somehow try to be good enough or obey well enough or live well enough. Our place in all of this is to accept the invitation and get on board the express. That's what mission is about. Jesus is the sent one. Get on board and you too will be sent to shout and cheer about him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, in a time where there is so little, it seems, that we can be certain about, we thank you that here is the unshakable truth that all things are being brought together under the feet of the Lord Jesus. That right from the beginning and right throughout Israel's history, this was always your plan. It remains your plan and it will come to pass. We thank and praise you for that. And we pray, Father, that we might engage in your mission around the world. 
not out of anxiety, but out of joy, knowing that this is what's going on in the world. And we thank and praise you for your invitation to be partners with you in this great work. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.